0: I want to begin again with with an invitation to reflect on just how you're doing right now. I mean we're about one week into a statewide stay at home order. And I know that many of you had had before that already transitioned to working from home and there are others of you who fall into that slice of essential workers and are still out there working. So maybe this new order this week hasn't changed a lot about your daily life. For others, maybe you have had to stop working, Uh, and and you're beginning to find yourself more confined, you're staying at home, and I think all of us, regardless of our our situation, certainly feel the increasing seriousness of the situation that we're in. And and I imagine that the stay-at-home order has many people feeling fairly cut off and lonely you know either individuals in isolation by themselves or even just family units who are cut off from the larger community that they're usually spending their time with so i want to pause for a moment and just ask what does that loneliness feel like you know if you're feeling that just take a moment to lean into it what does that loneliness feel like and if if you're not really experiencing that as much during all of this well Maybe think to another time in your life when you felt lonely, when you felt that kind of loneliness. What does that feel like? You know, I I think back to my sophomore year of college. The first semester was great. It was awesome. I was roommates with my best friend. Another close friend of mine had come to the school as well, and and we were there. And the the girl that I had been dating uh, in a long-distance relationship with was moving to town as well, so we wouldn't have to be long-distance anymore, you know? I was surrounded by my core community, two of my best friends and the girl I was dating at the time. Right? It was great. But then the next semester, things started to change. My roommate was doing a study abroad program, so he went off to Germany. The other close friend I mentioned uh, had to move back home for the semester, so he would be away. And then things happened, and that girlfriend and I ended up breaking up, and, and uh, that all happened about the same time. So the second semester, Uh, was very different. You know, all of those core people in my life weren't there anymore. It it felt really lonely. And and I think two things came out of that season. One is that it, it really did press me a little bit closer to God. That often looked like spending time in my dorm room by myself, playing my guitar and singing to God. And and it just became a really rich spiritual season for me. Uh, The other thing that came out of that season was that it also pressed me into some new community. There were some people who I had known from a little bit more of a distance, but I began to get to know more deeply. And rather than relying on the relationships that I had had in the past, uh, I, I began learning during that season how to make new friendships. And then the following year, when my friends returned from study abroad and from home, I jumped right back into friendship with them. But it was in the context of this this wider web of community that had taken shape while they were away. See, it was this season of loneliness and loss. But it was precisely because of that loss and loneliness that a deeper relationship with God and a much wider connection to community emerged. And, and I've, I've shared pieces of my story before. So many of you know that the, the months after I moved to Seattle were also a, a time of, of loss and loneliness for me. My wife and I moved across the country, and then a couple months in, she left. She filed for divorce. And I found myself living alone in an apartment in a brand new city, having lost my marriage, my community, and and my sense of place. And it was this really dark season of grief. But at the encouragement of of others, I I sought help and counseling. And through that, it transformed into this season of intense self-discovery. And once more, a time to lean desperately into God for comfort. And it was a time that I began to discover new ways of praying and seeking Him. And and out of this dark time of loneliness, there came this this flicker of new life. Now, I'm sharing all of these stories, and, and I'm inviting you to reflect on your own times of loneliness, because I want to suggest that this season that we are in might just be Another dark time of loss from which something good and new might emerge. And when I say that, I don't mean that we should just try to look for the silver lining of what all is happening right now. I don't mean that we need to be optimistic about things rather than pessimistic, right? We talked about that last week if you watched the video. What I mean when I say this is that our God, is a God who goes into the darkest places and mysteriously transforms them into means of redemption. So the question I want to explore today is this. In the midst of this time of global loss and individual isolation, what redemption might God be working? What redemption might God be drawing us into? God redeems and heals in surprisingly unexpected ways. And that is exactly what we will see in our text today. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. We're continuing our Lenten wilderness journey with the people of Israel and, and this theme of being in the wilderness that, that we've been exploring has, has certainly taken on all kinds of new meanings under our current circumstances. You know, uh, as we've been thinking about this, we've seen that wilderness is a place to draw near to God, uh, but, but it's also a place of challenge. It's a place of loss and loneliness, where dark things come up to the surface in our hearts. And it becomes this invitation to a posture of confession and repentance. And it's this opportunity to experience in in deeper ways God's mercy and grace. These are some of the things that, that we've been exploring through Israel's wilderness journey in the book of Numbers. And today, we're gonna see all these things again. But we will also see a very strange image that becomes a surprising symbol of redemption, an unexpected means of God's healing. So let's read, Numbers 21, let's begin in verse four. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. And then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole. And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. This is the word of God. For the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for being a God who works redemption in unexpected ways. I pray that as we consider the words of this text, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts. That we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story is, is a really interesting one, right? On the one hand, there are some elements that we have become very familiar with by now. And, and on the other hand, there are some strange and surprising elements as well. So, so first, the familiar, right? This story is another one of these grumbling stories. We've been looking at stories like this for the past couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we heard the people grumbling about how they wanted meat to eat. Last week, we heard them grumbling about the promised land, and this week, they're grumbling about their food again. And in every single case, they began to to set their sights back on Egypt. They, They started looking back to where they had come from, and each time, God has responded with both judgment and mercy. Alright, two weeks ago, we saw God mercifully provide them with bread to eat in the wilderness, and then even give them exactly what they wanted in quail, for meat. But the judgment came as they stuffed themselves so full that they died. Last week, when they complained about the promised land, judgment came in the news that they would never enter that promised land, but instead die in the wilderness. But mercy came whenever God promised the people that their children would enter the land. So there was this piece of hope offered as well. And this week, in this story, we'll once again see judgment and mercy, right? There's judgment in that the poisonous serpents enter the people's camp and many are bitten and die from it. The serpent was already a symbol of sin and death. And it had been ever since that sneaky serpent led humanity astray in the garden. And so here again, the the serpents in the camp come to symbolize the people's sin. And ends up resulting in many of their deaths. But God does not leave it at judgment. He never does. God shows them mercy. Mercy. But the sign of mercy is is a little jarring. If we're honest, it's strange and and unexpected. Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it up on a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. Alright, that's pretty interesting. So Moses makes a serpent out of bronze, lifts it up on a pole, and when anyone looks at it, they live. So it becomes this symbol of life and healing for the people. And this symbol even persists today. You know, over these past weeks, we've all become a lot more familiar with various health organizations, right? On a local level, there's King County Public Health. Uh, But on a national level, there's the Center for Disease Control, the CDC. And then beyond that, on a global level, there's the World Health Organization, right? These are things that we've been hearing about more and more. Now, before the virus, I may have been a little familiar with the World Health Organization. But in recent weeks, I have found myself frequenting their website where they provide all kinds of informative updates about the virus and a lot of helpful guides for how to respond to it for for individuals, for households, for workplaces, and even guides for whole countries to respond to this. And when I go to their website, I can't help but notice their logo. Do you know the World Health Organization logo? Have you seen it? Take a look. Wow. Does that look familiar? The logo for the World Health Organization is a serpent on a pole. You know, you may have seen this symbol or others like it, right? It's a common symbol for medical practice and health. And so the serpent on a pole has actually become this fairly universal symbol for life. And for health so so hang on a second right let's go over all of this again and make sure we get everything straight what is the symbol of sin and death well it's a serpent right that's what deceived humanity in the beginning that's what was killing the people in the wilderness so the serpent is a symbol of sin and death now what is the symbol of healing and life Well, it's a serpent, right? That's what Moses lifts up on a pole, and that's what the people look at to live. That's what we still, to this day, have as a common symbol of health and medicine. How in the world do we explain this? Somehow, the thing that brought about death becomes the means by which God brings about life. Somehow, a symbol of death and destruction becomes an unexpected symbol for healing and life. Now this would make no sense at all. But for Christians, if we stop for a second and think about it, it actually makes total sense. After all, what symbol do we have in front of us every week as we gather? Every week, we and the Christians around the world gather before the symbol of the cross. Now, the cross was created to be a tool of torture and death. Rome would line highways with them and hang criminals on them as a statement. This is what happens to you when you mess with the empire, right? It was a tool of death. And it was a symbol of Rome's power. And yet, for Christians, it's become something entirely different, right? I mean, for us, the cross has become a symbol of life. And, ironically, of Rome's failure. Right? Rome hung Jesus on a cross and tried to assert its power over him. Death itself took hold of Jesus on the cross and and tried to assert its power over him. But Jesus didn't stay dead. And, And so for us, the cross that was meant as a symbol of judgment and death has become a sign of grace and life. This is only possible with a God of redemption who brings forth life from the darkest, of places, and This is exactly what we see going on in this strange wilderness story from Numbers 21. What was a symbol of judgment and death becomes a sign of grace and life. And this is not just the way that, that I'm reading this story uh, right now. This story is not merely an obscure story from the Old Testament. It's a story that Jesus read. And this is exactly how he understood it. Now, if you got your Bible with you still, go ahead and flip over to John chapter 3. Alright? John chapter 3. That's where I want to kind of end our time together, is looking at this. John chapter 3. Now, in this chapter, Jesus is having a private conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, who is a leader of the Jews. And they're talking about the kingdom of God, about being born again, and about the mystery of the Spirit of God. And all of this really is truly mysterious, right? Nicodemus, a well-studied leader of the people, is having a hard time wrapping his mind around all the things they're talking about. So John 3, look at verse 9. In the midst of this conversation, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And then verse 16, probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish, but may have eternal life. So in this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus draws a direct line between the symbol of the serpent and his journey to the cross. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And that phrase, lifted up, is John's way of referring to the cross all throughout his gospel. He says this explicitly in chapter 12, verse 33. So, just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so Jesus will be lifted up on the cross. And the connection for us is this. Just as the people of Israel looked upon the serpent and were healed, so we look upon the cross and live. So what does this mean? Right? What does this actually look like? Well, I want to place ourselves in that conversation that Jesus was having with Nicodemus. Right? They were talking about the mystery of the Holy Spirit, the lifting up of the Son of Man, and that famous verse, right? the love of God, the Father, So I wanna reflect on these three things. So hear this, in the light of the resurrection, it is only by looking to the cross that we can rightly understand the reign of Jesus. It is only by looking to the cross that we can truly live in the life of the Spirit. And it is only by looking to the cross that we can really rest in the love of God. So let's look at each of those three. First, understanding the reign of Jesus. Right? It is by no accident that John uses the phrase lifted up to describe the cross. John truly depicts the cross as the throne on which Jesus rules and reigns. Much like the book of Revelation shows this picture of people worshiping before a lamb that had been slain, right? As we look to the cross, our definition of power gets upended. We see that Jesus does not reign like Rome did by crucifying his enemies. Rather, he rules by being crucified in their place. This is the mystery. Of the power of God. And this mystery transforms the way that we, ourselves, live. Rather than seeking power the way that the world does, we exercise our power by giving it up. You know, in this season of the coronavirus, there are many things that, that we've been forced to give up, right? But also there are many things that others have lost, from income, to jobs, to the lives of their own loved ones. And so we, as the people of God, are called to find ways to give our own resources to those in need, to support those who have lost something, and to love those who are lonely during this season. This is what it truly means to live in God's power. It is only by looking to the cross, That we can rightly understand the reign of Jesus. So, So, secondly, living the life of the Spirit, right? The cross is the key that unlocks the transforming power of the Spirit. In Romans 8, the Spirit of God is described as groaning along with creation for redemption. When we look to the cross, we see a true and visceral picture of the groaning of God, we see that the Spirit truly takes up residence in the darkest places in order to bring forth life and light. Even out of torturous suffering and death, the Spirit can bring life. As we look to the cross, we learn to see as the Spirit sees We learn to see redemption in the most surprising and unexpected places. With the eyes of the Spirit, the serpent can actually become a symbol of life instead of death. With the eyes of the Spirit, the cross can become a symbol of grace and healing instead of just the place of death. With the eyes of the Spirit, loneliness and loss become a time of newness and depth. As we look to the cross, the frustration, the fear, the anxiety that we feel during this season that rise to the surface in this wilderness time can be transformed into love and joy and peace, fruit of the Spirit. It is only by looking To the cross, that we can truly live the life of the Spirit, and finally, resting in the love of God. Right, the cross is the place where we can finally be at rest in the love of God. Over the past two weeks, we've seen Israel's constant failures, and we've taken this time to reflect on our own failures in a position of confession and repentance. And as we dwell on our own failures, the the many ways that we have failed, it becomes easy to sink into shame and feel like God feels anything but love for us. But at the cross, our shame is transformed. And we can finally enter into our true identity as God's beloved children. As we look to the cross, we can truly see that God so loved the world. It is only by looking at the cross that we can really rest in the love of God. So this is my challenge to you this week. Use this strange season that we are in to look to the cross if you find yourself with extra time and space that you usually don't have, instead of watching extra TV, take some time to set your eyes on Jesus. If you have your Lent booklet that we've been working through during this season, uh, that's exactly what we're going to be doing together this week. We're going to be reading and, and reflecting on passages about Jesus. Jesus. And if you don't have a physical copy with you, you can get a digital copy online and and read along this week. And so my hope is that this week, may we marvel at the mystery of the cross. May we rest in the love of God. May we see with the eyes of the Spirit, looking for redemption, in surprising and unexpected places. Ultimately, may we set our eyes upon Jesus. May we look at him and live.